Yeah, welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner, and I'm Jackson. And we have a guest uh, with us today, William Strickland, who is the president of Mission One. And our topic today is partnership, partnership specifically in the global church. And so welcome, William. Thanks, guys. Excited to be next door from my office in our podcast recording room. All right. So honesty time. Uh, Warner and I are interviewing uh, the guy that's actually our boss. <laughs> and uh, so uh, just putting that on the table. But uh, if uh, anybody's been around me to know uh, know me well enough that I'm not afraid. I'm 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 willing to challenge you. I'm willing to throw throw down uh, on on our discussion. That's one of the things I like about you. There'll be several words that we bring up today that we have to redefine. I'm not going to take the time to define boss, but it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> well, William, let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, um, I grew up in the South, um, the Deep South, the Tuscaloosa, Alabama, born and raised there. Um, actually lived there um, until I moved here to Phoenix about four and a half years ago. Um, so that's formational for me growing up in an honor and shame culture. You guys understand the way the South interacts with honor and shame. Had a good childhood there, safe family, um, ended up being a good athlete, played football at the University of Alabama, got tied, degree huh? engineering. Yeah, roll Tide. Roll Tide. See, I'm an Aggie, so I don't get these things right. <laughs> um, my best friend was living in China as a missionary, and uh, I had made the mistake of getting married before I decided I wanted to go be a missionary. So I tried to convince my wife to move to China she was not ready for that. So we, we joined a different mission organization where we ended up in Eastern Europe for the first summer at least. Um, and it was a children's organization. For Worked for them for about six months before they decided they wanted to expand into Asia. And they asked me to lead that process. And I was young and naive enough to uh, accept that job. And uh, so took off into the whole continent of Asia, about half the world's population, with the plan to help the church minister to children better. I learned a lot along the way, and that's actually how I ended up engaging with Mission One for the first time. I met Werner at a conference in Florida, but really his book was transformational for me personally and the material that we were teaching in Asia at the time we were helping pastors to see the value in children's ministry and do it effectively um, and learned quickly that contextualization is a big part of that, but also partnership was. The model we were using in Eastern Europe was not going to work. Uh, we could not put on our own summer camps, uh, so it could only work through partnership. And Mission One, having done that now for about 30 years, I guess at the time it was about 25, uh, they were somebody who I went to to learn, how do we do this well? Great. Thank you, William. Uh, what does it mean to you uh, to be uh, a partner in the global church? How do you see that in its ideal form? Well, to partner we'll get in into the, the messy church. stuff in a little bit. Yeah, I'm just, but just talk about the ideal first. Definitely. Because you said that's what part of what attracted you to Mission One. So this is what we want to talk about today. Is. Well, I've, I've been on a learning journey on this subject, as I hope you guys have been as well. Um, to be a part of the global church is inherently to be in partnership, I think. So when I use the term global church, uh, you could take, we say in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Some people trip over that word Catholic, so you can replace it with global. What we mean there is is God's church around like the universal world. universal church. Universal church, exactly right. So to be a part of that is inherently to partner. And we see that vision in the New Testament that, What's unique about the church is it's every tribe, tongue, nation, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian. Um, so the ideal, I think, is in partnership, you have two main things, in my opinion. You, you have a shared mission, so something that you're unified together to accomplish. And the second thing that you have is reciprocity. Those two ingredients make for an authentic partnership. Shared mission and reciprocity. I think so. And not to oversimplify it, I hope we'll get in, have some time to get into the details of that. Okay, well, let's let's just push a little bit further into the details here, a little bit further into deep end. Someone can say, okay, yeah, I agree with that as well. What is it about your perspective of partnership that you would say 
differ somewhat from other approaches or perspectives that you see? Yeah. So I talk about, I use the term authentic reciprocity a lot. I wish that I did not have to use the qualifier authentic before that. Um, I think it's telling that we do have to, we've got to use the word authentic when we, when we talk about reciprocity or about partnership. Um, because often what I see from a Western perspective um, is we try to engage in partnership. It sounds good. It looks nice from the outside, but often we don't engage authentically in that. We're not looking for real reciprocity. Uh, we're looking for token reciprocity often. Okay. Ex explain your terms here because reciprocity, give and take, this is usually not, that's kind of a big word when you're talking about authentic and reciprocity. So define this a little bit, what you mean by that? Yeah. So reciprocity it just means that uh, both parties in a partnership are receiving value. And so when I say I have to tag authentic onto the end of it, and it's not to say there's anything wrong with people that do this, but you hear people that go on short-term mission trips and they return and they say, you know, I went to go to bless them, to provide medicine if there's a medical mission trip or to do some training. But really, I ended up learning more than or I gained more out of it than they did. And and that's a good thing. And that's true. I'm not sure if that's authentic um, because you, now you have the option of returning back to your normal life. You did not go into the partnership thinking that you were going to receive value in your life or in your organization's so when you uh, say mission. authentic, you're not talking about motives or like ulterior motives of whatever. You're you are you're not talking about the hearts of the people. You're talking about something about the nature of the exchange of the relationship or what? Yeah, I mean, is there something that actually adds value? Uh, we'll talk about it in terms of mission one to mission one as an organization because we partner with other organizations. If it's just mission one providing value. And there's, we're not getting anything in return. And you may hear me talk, say that and think about financials. I'm not talking about financials. But if it's not, we don't actually get something of value as mission one, uh, then I don't think it's authentic. And to be honest, we've had those issues. Um, the nature of the way the American church is viewed around the world makes it difficult. Not to say, woe is me, the American missionary who can't get any value in return, but it's just a culturally an issue that we have to recognize. The status quo is that uh, non-Western Christians often view Americans as a source of uh, resources, and American Christians don't often view non-Western Christians as a, as a place where they can go to gain value. And in particular, and this is what I hope we get into, I'm talking theological value or mission uh, practice, mission practices. There's a lot for us to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world. And because our culture is so built around economy that when the economic value is only going one way, and, and I, I think there's a good argument that it should really only be going one way right now, then we leave out the things that we can learn. The way that our churches here in America can engage with their congregations, with their communities, the things that we read in the scripture, and I know you guys do a lot of work on that. So when I read your stuff, and both of you actually were my entry ways reading your books were uh, helping me to see the gospel from different perspectives. Okay, so authentic partnership, you're saying is it, it necessitates two-way reciprocity, and it needs to be intentional, not incidental, such that you go into a partnership expecting to get some blessing, some benefit also from them, not merely being a benefit to them. Is that right? Is that a summary? Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that eloquently, by the way. But it, um, not only are you expecting it, but the value is there at the end as well. So it's both things. It's you go in expecting to receive something of value, and then there's actually something of value received. But not necessarily material, financial. Exactly right. So when I say that, something of value, uh, I do not mean material, financial, although that's included. And so that's the, that's the piece that I see that's missing the most and why I have to put authentic in front of these words. The shared mission, I think, is often really authentic. We all know the stories of, um, and it's a big problem, um, but Westerners 
in particular, Americans always assuming the leadership position in the room. Again, just cultural norms, and it shakes out that way. It's not to point fingers and say these evil people uh, want to take control of everything. It's just to say often we're not aware of our of our cultural values and say, here's the mission. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Uh, I, I think that we can learn a lot and let let our non-Western brothers and sisters speak first and, and share their ideas. But even when that happens, I think the church is often finds herself there's enough problems in the world for us to rally around a common mission. Yeah. So you talk you talked about the example of a short term mission and people frequently come away with good feelings or a sense of, hey, I'm really privileged uh, in the life I have or look at their faith and their joy. OK, so people can maybe grasp that. Can you give some kind of example, put flesh on this, uh, maybe from something in the ministry of Mission One or your experience where that authentic reciprocity uh, has been clear that you say, yeah, this is an example where we got so much from them, but not just merely a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, can I, I need to pause here because there's, there's, there's a disagreement that I have uh, before we move on. And that is this, that the idea that we give money to our partners— and we're not learning something from them very much. Therefore, it's not authentic reciprocity. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if that's really true. Because historically, you know, in, in our mission, we have gained things from our partners, which is impact on the ground, serving, you know, the expansion of the church, uh, evangelizing unreached peoples, reports of, you know, churches being planted, people being saved, the gospel going forward to unreached places. And that is something that our constituents here in the States have recognized as something that they recognize as as being valuable. So uh, a mutual goal is reached is also it, yeah, exactly. part of it. Is inherently so, reciprocal. So, yeah. so I'm not, so I'm just wondering if it's an either or, either mm. it's it's authentic or not, or maybe it's just a matter of degree, you know, mm. because uh, I, I do agree that we we can learn more from our partners in the global church, but I think we have to be careful not to, maybe this is the wrong word, we have to be careful not to demonize the exchange of financial resources for, uh, and doing that in a trusting way for the impact that they, that our partners have gained for the kingdom of God over the years. Yeah, I, I hope that I clearly I was putting out some demonization of that idea. Um, that's certainly not my intent. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. I didn't think that was. I, I just wanted to add a little bit of nuance to it. I think I can answer both of your questions with, with an example of the way that this has worked. So um, you're right, Warner. That is the way on paper Mission One has traditionally exists, that we've help to fund organizations around the world that are involved in these missions essential to the global church accomplishing its mission. And just that accomplishment gives us the feeling that we're not just the feeling, but, but the church as a whole, we view ourselves as a whole, that we're accomplishing the mission. That's mm -hmm. reciprocity. Accomplishing it together. Right. But, but I think what mission one has done is we've entered in intentionally with deep levels with with the goal of deep levels of relationship of trust. And when you do that, you begin to add value. So mission one, and Werner, you can correct this if it's uh, if it's incorrect. But when we started out 30 years ago, so this is our 30th anniversary is coming up, we were help we were partnering with individual evangelists around the world. And through relationship with leaders, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, we learned that partnering organization to organization um, and helping them to have local accountability was the better way to partner. Now, we learned from that because we were in relationship. I'll put authentic in front of it again. I wish that I didn't have to do that. <laughs> I just see so many examples of people throwing the word relationship out there uh, when maybe it's not true relationship. But when you're in real relationship, you learn things like that. And so we learned a better model for our organization from our partners. Another example, and Bob Schindler, our founder, brings this up often. Idris Nalos is our partner. He's the leader of our of partnering organization in South Sudan. 
And uh, Bob was a traveling evangelist when he founded Mission One. And from Idris, a relationship with Idris, he learned about holistic ministry. And Idris was telling him, you know, that's just not how the gospel moves here in South Sudan. To preach the gospel is to care for people's needs is to help them to lift themselves out of poverty. Like the gospel has that impact. And so that began Mission One's journey in learning what is the fullness of the gospel? Is it just about saving individual souls? Um, so even though on paper we were, uh, the finances run one way and, and the reciprocity was that we, we saw the accomplishment of God's mission in the world, we also, because we are in a relationship, we're, getting re- we're learning real things and applying them in our work. Okay, you know, this brings up something that came to mind when I was invited to work with Mission One. One of my, one of my early questions was, well, does Mission One send missionaries? And the answer is no. No, no we do not. No, we do not. And so the average listener may not realize that, hey, mission organization, they obviously send missionaries. So you have the fact that Mission One doesn't send missionaries. So far, we've said a lot about money, use of monies. And Now we're talking about relationship. So for a lot of people, there's a lot of tension here. At least, you know, money seems to get in the way of relationship. Not having missionaries, how do you have relationship with people overseas? So how do you foster this sort of authentic relationship or maintain legitimate relationships from a distance if you don't have missionaries on the ground? It's extremely difficult is the first answer to that question. And there, there are problems with that when, when you're not there. I, I often get the question about accountability here. Maybe you're getting at that some too. But relationship, uh, what I often say, we have systems of accountability, and they're good systems of accountability, and other organizations have learned from us in this way. But the real accountability is the relationship. So I think the first ingredient there is intentionally being long-term when you enter into a relationship, especially with an organization. and. Mission One's partners are, I think our newest partnership is like seven years old, maybe eight years old. Um, And it takes a long time for us to form a formal partnership. So what I mean by that is like you're going on visits. There was no way you can have authentic relationship to form a partnership of trust if you're not sitting down and having tea in someone's home a number of times. And so that takes travel. And for the most part, where we're at economically in the world, it just makes sense for the Americans to travel to visit. Um, so being in uh, a partner's home, having tea, coffee, meals together, like that is a part of forming authentic relationship. And you have to do that many times. I praise God often that we now have these video calling systems that, I mean, I can't imagine when Mission One was founded, the, these guys were writing letters back and forth <laughs> and waiting weeks to get them and, you know, being able to travel once a year. Not or just twice weeks, a year. months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But now I can hop on a call and it helps, but it, it's not the same thing. Um, so it's both. And once you reach a certain level, then you do your best to find a way to have your, your partner, your friend, new friend come visit you in your home. And once those, once those relationships of trust are built, then you can start thinking about mission together. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. Okay, so what do the conversations and visits look like? Because there's this phenomenon where the relationship in between missionaries and locals is more transactional and it's really focused on on the task that needs to be done. So what do conversations look like? Are they all business or, or what? So no, they're not all business intentionally. And that's a hard thing, I think, especially on our end, 
to hold ourselves back. I know for me personally, and, and we try to bring people on our team that have cross-cultural experience and that are relational in nature. But for me, I want to get stuff done. I love accomplishing things. So it's hard for me to hold back and say, all right, yeah, the relationship part's important, but we can build a relationship as we uh, help this community to get a church or uh, help these girls to, to get a high school. Uh, where they don't have access to education, because that's what we're in it for. That's why we're forming the relationship. That's the shared mission part. Uh, so it takes patience to sit down and have tea and ask about family. And depending on where you're at in the world, those conversations are really rich because that's what they're thinking about a lot more than I am. Yeah. So all this involves a lot of trust. And Werner, you seem to actually have written the book on partnership, uh, the beauty of partnership. And one of the things that you say... Uh, either in the book or certainly in one of your training videos, you talk about Jesus trusted his disciples. And you talk about that kind of as a model for thinking about partnership. For a lot of people, that will sound a little strange. We mean Jesus trusted his disciples. We're a bunch of filthy sinners. He didn't trust his mission to us. Well, could you unpack that a little bit? Because it seems to bear on some of the theological underpinnings of partnership. Building a reservoir of trust cross-culturally is just foundational for having a successful long-term shared mission and, and shared effective work. And uh, what we see in the life of Jesus is he called his disciples together. And in, in the book, The Beauty Partnership, we focus on, on Matthew. Jesus called Matthew, who was a tax collector, and we can just only imagine, you know, what Peter, who was uh, a fisherman in the same community, thought about Jesus calling the tax collector to whom Peter probably paid taxes and was probably ripped off, you know. And so the fact that Jesus would look beyond the immediate circumstances and think about how his how Matthew's life would be transformed and, you know, behold, uh, Matthew ends up writing uh, the gospel of Matthew. And so this whole dynamic of building trust cross-culturally is really critical, and to reflect on it biblically and theologically is significant for us as Westerners, because I think as Americans, we tend to think of ourselves as being, I don't know, inherently, you know, better at things. And so in looking at other cultures, we, you know, we wonder, why don't they do things that way? How come they're so slow at this? Or how come they're, you know, they have to talk to 20 different people before making a decision? Or, and so our mistrust gets in the way of authentic relationship, you know, and unless you have a, a reservoir of trust— uh, you won't have what you need to to work through thorny issues and and you know some of the messy things that happen along the way, which are inevitable. So building trust is we see it in the life of Jesus, and we need it for partnership in the global church. Yeah, people don't want to get burned. I know that in China, one of the things that students will do for foreign teachers is they will bring them early on, like say a, a bunch of bananas or whatever else this is a gift. And teachers, new teachers especially, are oftentimes a little suspicious thinking, are they trying to bribe me for a grade? You know, they'll have students take them out to dinner and people think they're trying to bribe them. And hey, maybe sometimes that is the case, but more often than not, what they're actually doing is just trying to develop a relationship because people throughout the world it's through the exchanging of gifts that relationships are built. It's not a bribery thing. It's a, this brings us closer together. But that initial distrust, that fear of being conned or manipulated is a hindrance to the relationship, deforming a relationship right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to be fair, you know, Americans have been conned. And it goes the, you know, it goes both ways. We've been conned uh, by so-called Christian leaders from the majority world, uh, talking about ministries that are being built, and then when you actually go there, there's nothing there. And uh, nationals have been conned, or or majority world leaders have been conned by Americans who make promises that they have not delivered on. So this factor of trust in the global church is it's a it's a really big issue, and uh, you know so so the relational dynamic and and the, what you build kind of separate from the transactional aspect of, of, of missions, that 
if you don't have a really strong trusting relationship, you you don't really have much. Yeah, and there's like you mentioned, there's good reasons to, or seemingly good reasons that people start with suspicion. I mean, I I mentioned earlier the number one question I get from new uh, people who want to learn more about Mission One is, how do you know they're using the money for what you send it for, or what are your systems of accountability to make sure what the reporting is actually being accomplished? Hmm. Even that question has a sense of like, how are we going to, you know, cause there's no trust there. There's how are we going to hold them to the line? Right. And, and it's very telling that that is the number one question. I think of our culture, not to, we are Americans. So talking, dissecting American culture, I think is something that we get to do. I'm not saying American culture is bad and majority world cultures, honor, shame cultures are good. I'm not saying that. But as we dissect what's our responsibility in this, it's important to look at that. I I read Malcolm Gladwell's, not his latest book, but the one before, Talking to Strangers, and he kind of flips it at the end of the book on its head. So spoiler alert here, I guess, um, and shows how the most successful people start with trust. Now, that doesn't mean that those people that start with trust don't get burned. He goes over example after example in the book of, of people that start with trust getting burned. But if you don't start with trust, especially I feel when you're working cross-culturally, you don't have a shot. The, the important thing, though, is that you've got to go into it knowing that it just takes time. And that's where getting the transactional, we've got to get our quarterly numbers up, uh, which is a part of our culture, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just doesn't work in this context. So it's difficult to explain to people that want to see our impact quickly that, hey, this may not, we may not see impact three years down the road, but I believe that there's more impact when you partner than when you don't. Yeah. And to share a story, Westerners tend to think that partnership is in this, you know, one to three year kind of period to accomplish some kind of goal. But when a non-Westerner hears partnership and they really, they, they're thinking lifetime. They're yeah. thinking. They're long, thinking family. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that scares the average Westerner uh, who wants to pay off relational debt really quick. And so we don't, we can wipe our hands clean. But I give an example of what happens if we don't get this right. As many people know, my former organization was the International Mission Board, the IMB. And back in the 90s, uh, the IMB formed a load of partnerships with seminary, helped start seminaries all around the world, Africa, Asia, so forth and so on. Around 1997 to 2000, there was a philosophical change and a little, far more focus on church planning and and move away from theological education. Well. Almost overnight, many of those partnerships were severed and local seminaries and, and churches were left with big buildings and budgets and whatever else and, and panic. And they, so they started forming relationships with basically any number of denominations or groups that would help fund them because they were desperate. And I will tell you to this day, many of those uh, seminaries or theological colleges refuse to work at all with anybody from the International Mission Board or Southern Baptist because, you know, 20 something years down the road, they still felt burned and, and saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. And it's been a mutual encumbrance, not only just relationally in unity, but we could be mutually beneficial to each other's ministry and work. Well, yeah, that's a great point. And again, talking with people here in the United States about our work, I can kind of project the response to what you just said was a couple of things. Number one, they didn't have to take the IMB's money to begin with. They knew what they were getting into. Why didn't they plan for after they left? You know, the IMB blessed them with that. That's the first piece. And then the second would be, uh, and I get this a lot, drives me crazy. Our partners are often talked about in the way that we have this parent-child relationship. Well, they're like your children. It was time for the IMB to leave and to let the children try to make it on their own. They prepared them to this point. And there's some good in that. I'm not trying to say that's a totally wrong metaphor, but when we're already starting from the point of being the dominant culture in the world, the economic powerhouse in the world, it's not helpful when you're trying to form this authentic relationship and, and learn from one another. 
I, I think we'll probably get into patron client a little bit later, but you know, that is a much more helpful metaphor for me. Okay. Go understanding. There. Just go there now. Yeah, all right. So, cause I want to go back to the first point about they didn't have to take their money, but, but I'll start with patron client relationship. It's been really helpful for me. And it was when I was working in Asia and learning from mission one. And now that I'm at mission one to view our relationships with partners, oftentimes, not all the time, it varies. Each relationship is different as patron and client. And I don't know if you guys have talked about that on the podcast yet, but we have not, but I, I guarantee the average person that I've talked to when they hear patron client, you might as well say oppressor, dictator, I know, I know. feudalism, Lord, mafia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they go, yeah. Why would he go there? If he's not wanting the parent-child conversation, right? (laughs) He doesn't like parent-child, so he's going to make a slave and master? Right. No, no. What was helpful in reading, especially Werner's book, was understanding God as the good patron. And the way that these terms were even used in the Bible, uh, the term grace and and the returning of of favor. So uh, let me, you, uh, you guys are more qualified to talk about this, but my understanding of the patron client relationship is you have one party with more status and that status comes from a variety of factors. In, in our case, I think it, we talk about economically, there's a higher status built into the relationship. Um, and the other party uh, is of lower status. And again, economically is what I'm talking about here. I'm not trying to say our partners are of lower status than us. Mm. Um, but maybe economically or a global social, because we, everybody knows that people look at Americans a certain way, whether yeah. it's deserved or not. Our media dominates the world media stage. Um, we are the dominant culture in the world right now. There's no, there's nowhere where we go where we're the. We, we might be unusual as the only American there, but most people in the world know about the United States of America. Anyway, setting up that relationship. In, in built into it is inherent reciprocity. So the patron blesses the client and the client then has a duty to re- return blessing to the patron. And again, duty, it's another word that maybe make emotions go up, right? It's this joyful uh, duty that a client has is it's because the patron is good to them. Now we see bad patrons and that's where this gets messed up. This metaphor gets messed up because most of the time we think of patron client as the bad patron who's there to oppress the client. But when done correctly, when done the way that God is viewed as the patron in the Bible, both parties' status are lifted together. Uh, The patron's status is increased and the client's status is increased simultaneously. So let me just throw you a little raft here because easily people could misunderstand you. Thank you. Uh, I think about like a, a marriage relationship. There are obligations that come out of that. Someone does something, you know, or people, your wife or husband do these things for you naturally in the scope of the relationship. It's expected that you're also going to do things, loving things for them. And it's not seen as this contractual slavish obligation. It's it's what makes relationships. There's this mutual, mutual obligation that goes back and forth and intensifies the same thing with any close friendship. So when people hear the word duty or obligation, they immediately think, transaction, employment, slavery, but it's what it's what's in every genuine close relationship. Yeah, there's a beautiful, honorable aspect to obligation, and that's actually inherent in the word grace and how it was used in in first century Palestine in the in the Roman Empire. Just to fill in a, a couple of blanks here, there, I think it was Seneca who wrote about grace in three ways that there was, in the patron-client relationship, there was grace in giving from the patron to the client, there was grace in receiving from the client to the patron, and then there was grace in returning praise or returning favor or blessing from the client to the patron. And so that is the ideal, and that's beautiful, and that's the sense in which I think we want 
or Mission One wants a partnership to function in a really healthy way. This is really exciting for me because this is the Doing Theology Thinking Mission podcast. We want to look at the intersection, the mutual benefit of missiology, culture with theology and biblical scholarship. And here we are squarely looking at this facet of biblical scholarship where it looks as God as the benevolent patron in Scripture and then going, look, this could actually be give us insight into one aspect of partnership. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. characterize every kind of partnership, but mm -hmm. many types of partnership. And this kind of conversation between something that is very entrenched in the biblical scholarship is not something that gets talked about and applied within mission circles. Yeah. It's and very exciting. Well, that's the... I feel uncomfortable talking about it without, you know, I have you guys here, but you guys understand this relationship. I'd much rather be doing this over a meal, someone going, well, tell me more about this patron-client relationship because I'm, it seems bad. Uh, but it just, it runs in the face of our cultural norm. Again, not to say that that cultural norm is inherently bad, but when your primary concern is individual autonomy, and you don't even know that that's your primary concern, like that's just how you were brought up, it's very difficult to to talk about what Werner just said of this beautiful relationship. And you said it's not contractional, but it kind of is. Um, it, it kind of, there's this unwritten contract, but it's, you're joyfully entering into it. And it's just the way in which people living in India operate. More like a biblical covenant rather than a Thank modern you. day contract. And, and I would add also that in a sense, our partners are clients of Mission One, but they, our partners are also patrons. In their communities. In, in and their oftentimes communities. with us. And like I said, it depends on the relationship. But, but in their communities, they are certainly the patrons. And that's what we want. We want the church in a community to be viewed as a source of blessing, to be viewed as a patron to the community. The place where people go to receive blessing and then return blessing as well. This is precisely, if you read the biblical scholarship by Bruce Winter uh, in his work on Romans 13, that's exactly how he reads the first part of Romans 13, that the church is to be essentially uh, act as a patron for Roman society. Now, we, that's a deeper dive, but there's been biblical scholarship on this, on this kind of thinking as well. And I would add two other books, David De Silva's classic— Honor, Patronage, Kinship, Purity, and the book by Barclay. I mean, <laughs> Barclay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to finish Paul your... and the Gift by, the... by John M.G. Barclay. All right. Let's, uh, let's go return just uh, for a brief bit into some practical questions people are going to have. Would you say in the goal, that one of the goals is to avoid dependence? Yeah, so... That goes back to—I said I was going to go back to it. I'm going to go back to it. Why do people in the non-Western world enter into relationships where they receive large sums of money even though they're not prepared to carry on this program long term? Why were these seminaries built without the non-Western leaders saying, hey, hey, let's slow down. If you guys were to leave, I'm not sure we would be ready to take this on. Why does that not happen? So independence is, this is where this conversation is going. Just to give a metaphor, I'm going to steal something from the book When Helping Hurts and, and change it up a little bit. You know, I lead Mission One. Part of what I do is raise money for Mission One. If we were to say, um, I don't know who the wealthiest guy in the world is right now. It's probably Bezos, maybe Elon Musk. One of those guys walk in the door. We might be a little suspicious if they say, I've got $20 million with your name on it. And I think maybe it's up to you. Do what you want. But, I, but I, I think it would be really good for you to build a second floor onto your building here in downtown Phoenix. I think that would be key to your mission. Not, not saying, hey, the $20 million is reliant on you building this second floor building. But I'm, immediate feeling that, I'm immediately feeling that pressure of, hey, we better get an architect over here, uh, an engineer, figure out how we can do this. Uh, because I don't want to lose out on $20 million, especially if it only costs five to build on the second floor. I don't know if it was cost five. That's <laughs> just making up numbers. So I hope everyone can feel that pressure. A wealthy person coming into the room, suggesting an idea, uh, maybe not even attaching a dollar amount to that idea, but just the fact that you know that they're wealthy and they're throwing an idea out there. 
puts the pressure on you. And this is us living in our individual autonomous societies where we don't like to be told what to do. So we're not even dealing with the same cultural factors. We start to feel that pressure of maybe, maybe if I do what they ask, then they'll fund whatever it is that's important to me. So, William, are you saying that me as a middle-class American going cross-culturally, that I can be perceived in the same way as a super wealthy person representing all kinds of resources, and and I'm not aware of the pressure I am placing just by the fact that I'm in the room? Exactly right, Werner. And it's not just that you're middle-class either. It's that you hold that American passport. Mm. So, being aware of that is important not to cause dependency. But but I do have to say the goal to avoid dependency is really important in the work that we do. But it's almost impossible to not deal with those issues. Well, you know what? I would you, you say that to avoid dependency. I'm wondering if that's actually a good question at all, because guess what? I'm dependent on my wife. Yeah. So I, I like where you're going there. The goal is not independence. So that's another word. As mentioned, there's several four. We've got boss. We've got authentic. Now we've got independence. Independence is not the goal. And that's where a lot of people want to go with this conversation that I deal with in America. We want them to be independent and do it on their own and do it on their own. Uh, There's good in that, too. But interdependence and healthy. Mm. Again, I don't like that I have to put healthy in front of it, but I'll put healthy interdependence is the goal here. Mm. So dependence or unhealthy dependence looks like this. It looks that um, you partner with the way that Mission One partners. We partner organization to organization. And if an organization's leaders and all of their employees will not be able to put food on their table if Mission One does not send money next quarter, I'm pretty comfortable saying that's not something that we want as Mission One. Um, that's bad for us. I'm not saying that's bad in every situation, but that's a dependence where to where they're going outside of their community. They're disconnecting from their community in order to survive. That is a, the way that Mission One does ministry, that is a bad thing. But it's also something that, to be honest, we have caused in, in a few situations um, unknowingly and are working ourselves out of. So it happens. Um, by accident. And it's nobody's, it's not necessarily uh, mission one or the Americans in most situations fault. And it's not, I I really don't like when the fault is put with the non-Western leader or partner, as we talked about before, um, because they're, they're trying to survive and accomplish God's mission in their community. So that's the unhealthy dependence part. But interdependence looks like the way that we view it, at least, is that needs are being met through the local community. And even if needs aren't practically being met, let's say that there's some money coming from the outside to help pay for the light bill and put gas in the vehicle. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But the question is, is if that money's taken away, does the community feel responsibility for that organization, for that ministry? So that's primary. Now, once you establish that, now you can work on bigger and better things. That's where the term development, again, in the book, When Helping Hurts, is helpful. It's going beyond survival. Oftentimes when we think about the way the church cares for practical needs, um, we, we're thinking about survival. And that is important. We call that relief. Relief should always be short-term and infrequent as a response to disaster, war, uh, some extreme poverty situations, situations where people are dying. But development, what, what they call development, what we, what we call community transformation most of the time, is going beyond that to say, like, what is God's vision for this community? And when those practical needs are taken care of locally, or at least they, they're owned locally, then you can work on transforming community, like we said, to look more like the kingdom of God. And that doesn't just happen in a village in Africa. And it also doesn't just happen in a neighborhood in Delhi. It happens in our communities as well. We're all seeking how can our communities, or at least we should be, look more like God's kingdom? What can I do to contribute to this? So so what I hear you saying, William, is that when a partnership happens in the global church across distances, that in the most healthy way or the, in, the, in, a, in the ideal way, 
when that uh, church or that ministry organization, that mission organization in the developing nation is receiving funds from North America, from the West, that their local accountability or their local relationships ought to be enhanced by that partnership. And all too often, when funds go to a pastor, you know, in a particular part of uh, the majority world, the local accountability can be ruptured and bad things happen as a result. So that's the kind of thing we absolutely want to avoid. Well, let me uh, to put a bow on this and tie together a few threads of our conversation. Let me share a story where an unhealthy partnership had some pretty detrimental effects in in various respects. I was teaching in a Chinese seminary in the north of China, and one of my students is the missions pastor for a one of the largest Chinese church networks. There's just a, a handful of mega large networks. And this guy was at the very top as the head of all missions for this network. Uh, you're talking hundreds of thousands of, of believers under him and his lead under his leadership. And he liked a lot of things that I was saying about the gospel and contextualization and evangelism. And he said, can you get me some of these tracks or booklets or these tools? And put a long story short, he had he had an extremely close relationship with a extremely large and very influential and wealthy mission organization. But this mission organization is very much about numbers. How many churches have you planted? How many people have you shared the gospel with? And they were funneling him tons of money and, and, and resources and come to tracks. And you say, what could possibly be wrong with him with providing him tracks and not providing buildings and structures that you, you know, you could leave him and then they'd be stuck with the bill. You know, this is only a good thing, right? Well, the problem was, is that this guy saw their money and their influence meant that he needed to use their tools. Uh, and, but the tools were somewhat counterproductive in the culture and it made people feel in love because it was so numbers oriented and uh, there was hardly any kind of relationship and there were some theological weaknesses. And anyways, this guy was very discontent, but he said, what am I to do? I don't have anything else. And, and they're providing all these resources for me and I don't have anywhere else to go. And he goes, could you please provide something else? Um, because I'm basically stuck with these partners. Yeah, it sounds like a, a tail wagging the dog kind of situation. Yeah, he, he, was, he was maintaining it because he, well, I mean, it was better than nothing. But the it was but for the mission organization it was far more transactional, and, and they were getting their ideas across. But from this very prominent leader, he didn't want to be in it. He just felt like he didn't have a choice. Yeah. So his obligation to his international donor exceeded the concern that he had for uh, local contextualization or being in in a healthy relationship with his own community. Yeah. It sounds like so. The the negative influence is not always merely footing the bill or not footing the bill. It can also come across theologically and strategically, where the outsider may not realize that there are other priorities that need to be addressed in in the community, whether theologically or or strategically. Well, the, that's where I wanted to go next. Is it's not. I have experienced and seen, especially from other organizations, just horror stories of financial dependence being unhealthy and it causing havoc in families' lives. But I'm let's leave that there and go to. I, I think we can relate to all this if you're, if you, especially if you've lived in a small town. What happens when a Walmart or a Dollar General comes into a small town? Hmm. Uh, you know, people are suspicious at first, and then small businesses that Reed's Grocery in Tuscaloosa, Alabama couldn't make it. That's where I'm from. Reed's Grocery is where we got a lot of supplies uh, growing up. Walmart comes in, uh, Reed's Grocery is gone. I have no connection with Walmart. I know Mr. Reed, though. I still know Mr. Reed. That happens with the church. Uh, It happens theologically, like you mentioned, but I think this happens more with expats living outside the United States, but but a big mosque will go up uh, places like Bangladesh, India, etc. And American expats will often say to me when when that happens, well, you know, that's all funded from Saudi Arabia, right? Like that's 
that's all the Wahhabi guys in Saudi Arabia trying to propagate Islam around the world. It was I experienced that a couple of years before I began hearing locals as I began forming more local relationships. And this is Christians as well, but but Christians and not Christians will see the new church building and they'll say, well, you know, that's the Americans, right? And that sort of thing is happening. And so when the church gains that reputation, how, how then can it be viewed as the source of blessing? It's the Walmart of mm. the community, the the religious Walmart. It's some outside organization, and they sure they have some local manager who's running the place. And and that's not to belittle; these are all complex issues. It's not black and white at all. I'm not trying to say there's no good that comes from this. There's lots of good that comes from these things happening. But a good metaphor is it's this it's the religious Walmart come to town, um, and they're there to take your people. And guess what? They have a feeding program as well. And so you can show up twice a week and get your biryani in India, you know, whatever it might be. Anyway, we just have to be careful to think about that, the influence we're having in this community, the reputation we're giving the church. I think one of the uh, ideas that, from my perspective, can be helpful is to ask whether our cross-cultural partnership is enhancing the honor of the local mission organization or pastor in his own community. Yeah, I want to say two things. All these issues we're talking about, we're talking about issues mostly. We've presented some solutions, but I would think, here's what I think the biggest solutions are um, and the ones that I see being used the least in the missions space. First of all, is our ability to actually be honest about the impact that's happening around the world because of our actions, good and bad. It feels too good to say, and I, and I mentioned, I even gave the caveat a second ago, maybe I shouldn't have done that, to not call something a failure, to not say we have a bad reputation in this community because of what we've done. We're not honest with ourselves because we're doing God's work and God's work is always good. And he, he uses everything for good, right? I mean, we go back to that well and it's a good well to go to for our faith, but it's not good when determining future missions practices, being honest about what has actually happened, measuring that. And I'm not talking about, you, you know, you were talking about numbers. Maybe there's numbers involved. I'm talking about saying, what is the actual impact we intended to have? And did we have that or do we have something different that may also be good or it may be bad. I, I just, it drives me crazy. And, and it's more than just the mission space. It's, uh, there's a lot of industries that have this issue. But the ability to be honest about the impact that our work's having has to inform our future practices. So I think that's the first, like, be honest with yourself. Take a good long look in the mirror and go, is my work doing good in the world? And what can I do to make it better? And then the second thing, and this is the first value of Mission One, and we talk a lot about it, is listening. A lot of these issues can be resolved. We actually, uh, and listening can, can be a synonym here at Mission One for empathy. Do we actually want to understand the other's point of view? Or do we want to get enough information to where we can do our next step to make whatever project we're working on successful? And we make that mistake. I still make that mistake. So I'm not saying, oh, we're, we're, we've got it figured out. Um, but we do talk a lot about it. And I think that all of us can learn to listen more. It'll make us better people, better husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, uh, brothers, sisters, church members, uh, members of our community. But especially when you're working cross-culturally, where you, there's so much that shouldn't be assumed. And we assume these things because we think our life's the norm. So when we when we work cross-culturally, it's crucial that we go, do I actually understand their situation? Let me ask more questions and feel what they're feeling and not just take, okay, this is going where I want it to go or I've got enough information to move forward the way that I want it to go and, and then go that way. It's too easy to do that. I don't know that. I don't think that's an American problem. I think that's a human problem. But listening, I think, cures a lot of these issues, because if we understand the situation, we can then make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. This has been, this has exceeded my expectations, this conversation. It's uh, very stimulating, very practical, very helpful for me as a relatively new person uh, here as well. So we're going to close uh, with just a few questions, questions we like to ask 
First is, what can missions learn from theology? I don't. How do you separate these two things? <laughs> well, they tend to be separated. I know. We're trying to bring them together. I know that you are, but I hang out with you guys all day, so I'm like, I don't even like. What do you mean? Aren't they the same thing? And I know they're not. Um, missions can learn from theology. We've already mentioned a few specific things here about patron client, and maybe that's not theological. Maybe that's anthropological, and we. I don't know, but what we have to learn in missions in particular uh, from our theological brothers, the guys doing hard work like you guys, is what is the gospel actually? And then where I think uh, the biggest issue is where is it truncated? And so what I mean by that is the thing that Idris Nalos, the leader in South Sudan, taught our founder, Bob Schindler, was that the gospel doesn't work that way in South Sudan. You can't just get people to agree for their soul to spend eternity somewhere else. That's not going to be an effective way to reach. You're not saying there's a different gospel. You're saying that the gospel, the implication of the gospel flesh out differently in different places. Exactly right. right. And so you guys doing that, especially contextualization, is crucial for us understanding the way that we can be effective in mission and that we, the way that we talked about it, the way that the church is viewed in a community, uh, not just the way that an individual Christian is viewed or can individuals become a part of the club. That's important, but but if we don't understand it, that theologically it was working that way, we don't have a shot. So in speaking of reciprocity, out. what does theology learn from missions? What? Yeah, so I, this is, I get more excited about it this way, I think. It's easier for me to talk about. So like you, you got examples like Leslie Newbegin who come back from the mission field and they go, wow, my culture has, is experiencing an extreme case of syncretism uh, because he's been trying to do contextualization. And he returns, I think he was from England and yes. says, we've culturalized this thing and said, this is the final, this is the final draft of, of theology now. And it's syncretistic. So missionaries, and we see this, uh, I'll go a little bit further back. I, I teach a class on, have taught a class on missions a couple of times, and we go through the history of missions. Each time I teach it, I kind of refine it. But more and more I see these missionaries go with an intended purpose. William Carey, the, the father of modern missions, right? He goes, he's going to northern India, Bangladesh area now, and starts, he's going out to to convert people, the heathen, and wants them to spend eternity with the Father. But if you go to that place now, you see hospitals and schools. And in fact, the whole written language of the area was because William Carey was there. And so, and then you used to look in his writings. So he began to get transformed by his culture in a, in a way that is kingdom-like. And we, if we're not learning from our missionaries as theologians, I think we're missing out on so many different perspectives. I mean, that's where learning from you two guys, reading your books, that's what that did for me. It gave me other perspectives of the gospel that were needed for me to see f more fully. And I'm, of course, still on that learning journey of what is God trying to tell me in the Bible? What's he trying to tell me when I pray and meditate? And it's more than I've got this confession. And so that's it. I don't need to, I don't need somebody who's living in India to tell me what the Bible says. I have this confession written 400 years ago. So speaking of this learning journey, what have you been reading lately? What would you recommend other people maybe check out as well? Yeah, so I was looking it up. I thought you'd ask because I couldn't remember the author. So I, from my super spiritual reading, I've been reading this uh, commentary by Craig Bartholomew on Ecclesiastes. And again, it's doing the same thing. It's rocking my world. It's talking about how the author was dealing with Greek thought coming into the culture. Which I, of course, I'm, I missed that. Who would ever catch that? He was just reading. <laughs> and so I'm now viewing the way Ecclesiastes is written. And I feel this in my own life because I think we're having some shifts in our culture, big shifts um, right now. Is he's dealing with, am I an autonomous individual from the Greek thought or, um, or uh, is uh, my Jewish uh, collectivistic narrative worldview, which one of these is correct? And he's dealing with, Yahweh, it with these two lenses. Ah, oh, it's been like helpful because uh, usually I go to Ecclesiastes when I'm just feeling sad and I'm like <laughs> nothing matters. Uh, and now I got a different view. Cause, and I went there. I bought the book because I was feeling like you know fairly hopeless, uh, 
about some things that's going on in the church. So I'm reading that. And then I'm also reading The Emerald Mile, which is a book about the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. It's a really good book. I highly recommend. All right, William, let people know where they can learn more about Mission One. Yeah, so to learn more about Mission One, we try to point everybody to missionone.org, and you can play around on there and find out more about us. I would also recommend continuing to listen to this podcast because the work that these two guys do, we hope to be baked into every project that we work on. And so when I say baked in, I mean like it's integrated. That's the goal, at least. Uh, We work hard to try to make that happen. So go to missionone.org. You can learn about the projects that we're working on. You can learn about our history. Of course, you can give there if you are so moved, but continue to listen to these guys because this, these ideas are baked into our work. Hmm. Thanks. Thank you so much, William. You've been listening to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Thanks for joining us. 